Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst. With me to discuss the UK's relationship with China, whether the government is getting its policy right towards Beijing, and my colleague, social media journalist Zoe Crowther, alongside two brilliant guests, the Conservative MP Mark Logan, a vice chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on China, as well as Chris Cash, director of the China Research Group, which was set up by Tory MPs in 2020 to promote debate and fresh thinking about how Britain should respond to the rise of China. So the kind of the starting point for this discussion really is that back in October, Rishi Sunak made his first big foreign policy speech that signalled an end to the so-called golden era of relations between China and Britain, ushering a new phase of robust pragmatism towards Beijing. The Tory MP and sort of China hawk Ian Duncan Smith called that tautological nonsense, but fellow Conservative Alicia Kearns, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, told me for a piece that uh, it rings exactly the sort of bells I want to be hearing. I'm going to start with you, Chris. Alicia now chairs the committee at the CRG after a group was set up by Tom Tukanat and Neil O'Brien. Can you explain why it was kind of set up and, and why it was kind of needed and what the sort of work is that you, you do there? Yeah, so as you correctly said earlier, the China Research Group was set up by, by Tom and Neil in May 2020. And there was basically a recognition that China had become a, a significant geopolitical issue and the UK didn't have parliamentary group focused on China. So, so Tom and Neil decided that it would be a good idea to, to set one up. So they chaired the group initially and we had a steering committee of around 10 MPs and still have 90 MPs as, as part of the wider group. And the CRG was created not as a lobbying or a campaigning group. So quite different to the, the ERG, dis, despite the similarity in, in names. Yes, yeah, one of the many one of the many RGs that exist within <laughs> the Conservative Party over the past few years. Right, right. And there are reasons for, for why we adopted the, the, the name. But it was, it was set up to think more about how do we respond to the rise of China what type of relationship do we want with China and where do we need to draw red lines in our relationship with China? And that's still the model that we pursue to this day. Mm. And so obviously you're kind of seen as being a bit more hawkish, I suppose, than some other groups. How would you kind of define the, the sort of work that you do and the positions that you take on on things like China's foreign policy? Obviously, the pandemic has kind of thrust a lot of that into 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 light, how, how China's actions, not just within itself, but on the global scale as well. Yeah, so I would say fundamentally in the UK, as I'm sure Mark would be able to tell you too, there's a poor understanding of how China works and how China's foreign policy is developed. So we wanted to try and bring people together to improve our China capabilities in the UK. And we don't take sort of positions or lines as a group. We don't release statements saying the CRG believes this or the CRG believes that. Our MPs will take their individual views and we try to help them through briefing them. So we have two real strands of work. One is the parliamentary side of things where we will brief MPs for China-related debates in the chamber. And the other side is, is shaping the public debate. And that's everything from hosting events with experts to writing opinion pieces for our MPs. So that's the way I would encourage people to, to think of the CRG. And just moving on, Mark, obviously, before entering Parliament, you were Chief Spokesman at the British Consulate in, in, in Shanghai. You have a long history with the country. You're a fluent Mandarin speaker, I understand. What's your kind of view, firstly, on Sunak's speech back in October and, and where we are kind of now on, on, on UK-Sino relations? Well, I think just going back to, to Chris's point is that for you know a number of years, the understanding of China within the UK, I think it still needs a, an awful lot of work. And there is there's a real asymmetry uh, between the two countries, UK and China, in that within China, the first time that I kind of worked and lived out there was back in 2006. And the thing always struck me in the big cities, if it was Shanghai or Beijing or Shenzhen, 
is that you would come across, you know, literally scores, hundreds of people who would have, you know, real curiosity about the way of life in the UK, the political system, you know, some of the political leaders, the culture. And there was a kind of, there was a real effort to try and understand not just the UK, but uh, but the whole of the whole of the West. And you can see that in the sheer numbers of people that have been learning English in China over the last few decades since opening up in reform in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And I think there's actually more people studying English in China than there is the population of the of the United States. So I think, you know, some of the work that some new organizations like so the, the CRG, um, even, you know, a shout out to the, the newsletter that comes out every Sunday, Beijing to Britain, are doing to try and increase the understanding, I think is, uh, is a good thing. To your point on the prime minister's speech towards the end of last year, you know, I think I think the prime minister has has been very pragmatic. He's trying to strike a balance between, you know, that old chestnut of, you know, national security on the one hand and prosperity and trade on the other. So I think the Prime Minister and, and his administration sees that it's important to have a healthy relationship with China is to not engage too much in, in megaphone diplomacy, but it's actually to try and find a ways in which we can we can influence and, and guide China because we want to be at the table. I mean it's it's a reality of the modern world that we live in is that we will increasingly have to deal with China across a multitude of themes. And I think to close up to China would be very misguided because it would be like discussing in the latter half of the 20th century. If you said to any country, you know, we're just going to ignore the United States and go about our business, um, that just wouldn't work in, in practice. And I think the same applies for for China in the first half of, of this century. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think if you, you know, although Sunak you know, was kind of probably tougher on his stance than, than Boris Johnson had been, it was kind of a watering down of where he'd been perhaps in the Tory leadership contest in the summer when he sort of talked some really tough rhetoric. And in the speech in October, he talked about sort of working together on shared challenges and he refused to directly call them a threat. But it's still probably a far cry from, I don't think we're going to see Rishi Sunak and Xi Jinping sharing a pint in the way that David Cameron and him did, you know, back in 2016 or getting a selfie with Sergio Aguero. So do you think the pitch is for the Conservative Party and the government in 2023 dealing with the, the China of 2023? So I don't don't think they'll be sharing a pint because from what I understand, the Prime Minister's a teetotaler. No, it could be a non-alcoholic beer potentially, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it could be yeah. Zero, 0% of, of some description. They could, do, they could do some Kung Fu cha, some, some Chinese uh, tea ceremony, <laughs> and uh, we we can have a brew on the on the UK side, some like Tetleys or Panjana that you can get in Northern Ireland <laughs> would, would be a great. Well, you'd be up to Yorkshire tea, up to Yorkshire tea for for a British tea, wouldn't well, it? Given his given he represents Richmond. You no, know actually, you're completely correct. Yeah, so that, that's that's lovely diplomacy there there in action. So I you know I do think that the Prime Minister, going back to that point in the summer of last year in the leadership contest, is that obviously. You know, our party, the prime minister and the administration is reflecting some of the disaffection and some of the mood that is felt across across the country, across the media. And, you know, and I think, you know, to kind of be, be empathetic on this front is that it is, you know, and oftentimes we use this this little kind of story of, you know, if you imagine getting onto an elevator on the 20th floor, the United Kingdom's in that elevator. The United States is also in, in that elevator at the 20th floor. But the United States is much more corpulent than everyone else in the lift. But you're used to the United States as you're coming down those different levels. You've, you've had it around for a number of decades. But then on the eighth floor, China gets onto the elevator and it's almost as, as big and corpulent as the United States. You know, think of the tube in, in London every morning 
someone gets onto the tube that's much bigger in stature than you, and it takes a wee bit of getting used to. So I do think I do think there is a, re, a recalibration that has been happening, and and I think going back to Chris's point earlier, whenever the CRG was set up in the 2020, the, at that point around there was a, a real need, or people felt that China was becoming more ge- geopolitically important. I mean, I actually felt that much earlier on when I go back 15, 16, 17 years ago when I when I first went out to China to study when I came out of the the underground and I, I saw the kind of scale and uh, how dynamic actually the, the society and the place was of Shanghai I could already see that it was having a massive influence in the world but the thing that always surprised me was how much little interest and how much focus that there was in, on China outside of the chattering classes in London. Yeah definitely well, there's lots of kind of issues there to talk about I'm going to bring Zoe in you, you were um a feature for us this week about TikTok, the extremely popular Chinese-owned social media service. You, you know, the sort of warnings to politicians at the moment about using it. I think uh, in Europe, some politicians have been told to stop using it. Obviously, some MPs are big advocates for it and use it. Others are not. Can you explain what you wrote in that piece and, and why the sort of concerns are around using it? Yeah, so essentially there is a fallout among a number of Conservative MPs as to whether the government should implement a ban of TikTok on government devices and to be honest, just whether MPs should be using the app at all. Um, So the US banned it on federal government devices, the European Commission also banned it on their work devices. And essentially a group of Tory MPs, including former Conservative leader Ian Duncan Smith, Alicia Kearns, are calling for that ban to take place. And it's it's widely kind of symbolic of their mm. wider attitude to China that obviously the UK should take a harsher rhetoric yeah. on it. However, there are a number of MPs who really enjoy using the app, including Energy Secretary Grant Shapps, um, including a number of backbenchers. Luke Evans um, is definitely one on Luke yeah, Evans Luke is Evans. a huge TikTok star. And I also spoke to Ben Bradley, who's a backbencher and uses it quite a bit. And he basically told me that he isn't concerned about whether... China could be accessing data via the app as he feels there is nothing top secret on his phone that China would be interested in. Right. But, you know, it could be government ministers. Have governments made any point about it, about whether ministers should have it on on these on work phones? So at the moment, there is no specific guidance on TikTok. And that's something that Ian Duncan Smith and Alicia Kearns are calling for. They're calling for there to not only be a ban, but there to just be more guidance potentially highlighting TikTok as a potential security risk. At the moment, the only kind of guidance issued by GCHQ just has a general kind of how to avoid cyber phishing, how to just kind of do two-factor authentication on your phone and stuff like that. So at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that's pointing towards a ban. And there is quite conflicting evidence over whether TikTok does gather more data than other apps whether they are subject to Chinese kind of intelligence security laws that they'd have to pass that data over. So it's all a little bit up in the air, really. And I actually wanted to ask Chris, because at the moment, while the balance of evidence is quite unclear as to whether there should be a ban, what are your thoughts on it? Do you think the balance of evidence at the moment is that there should be a ban on government devices or do you think it's a, it's a little bit unclear at the moment? I should probably declare first that I'm not a, a TikTok user, so I don't know if that sort of impacts my biases at all when it comes to this debate. I think there are probably two strands of concern when it comes to TikTok and the one you've touched upon is the idea of data, data exfiltration and whether TikTok's parent company ByteDance is able to access UK citizen or UK official data 
in China. And TikTok has maintained the whole time that it has this degree of separation from its parent company, ByteDance. I think I could probably be safe in saying there's been some slightly misleading statements about that in sort of select committees in parliament. Um, and there have been reports of accessing journalist data uh, abroad in order to, to to check for leaks and just general sort of accessing information in China, which, which is part of their whole safety process. So that's one strand of concern, the, the data side of things. And it could obviously, it obviously becomes heightened when you have government officials or people working in parliament who are potentially working um, on sensitive topics, meeting potentially important people. The second strand of concern is the idea of platform manipulation. And when I chat to cybersecurity experts, this actually seems to, to be the more significant concern in that you have an algorithm that was created in China. And we, we know China's a, a approach to, to freedom of information and, and censorship at home. And 25% of people in the UK under the age of 30 in the UK get their news through TikTok. And it's whether that sort of stories on sensitive topics that might be sensitive to China are, are being buried by the sort of TikTok algorithm. And I think there's still a, a body of research to be done on that. In terms of what we should do approach-wise as the UK, the, the prime minister has quite rightly said all along, our approach to China should mirror that or be in lockstep with that of our allies. So we were very in favor of Rishi Sunak meeting Xi Jinping at the recent G20 summit, summit for example, because that would have put us in lockstep with our allies. On TikTok, as you've alluded to, the US, the EU, and I think Canada in the last two days have instructed government officials not to use the app. It feels like we're becoming a little bit of an international laggard amongst like-minded democracies when it comes to TikTok now. Mm, yeah, Mark, do you think that we perhaps should move a more lo in lockstep with some of our other allies? Or do you think that, I think it was Michelle Donnellan, the culture secretary, which was a culture secretary at the time, saying that, you know, we should people should be freedom of choice to be able to decide whether to use apps like TikTok? I think first and foremost, in this country, in, in the UK, we have some of the best, if not the best, you know, security agencies amongst amongst any of the 200 countries in the world. So, you know, I would first and foremost, when it comes to national security and, and securing our kind of cyberspace, is to defer to those agencies. And it, kind of, it reminds me, it was almost three years ago, whenever I was sitting on the Science and Technology Select Committee, we actually had Huawei, their UK general manager, came in on, a, on an open session. And at the time, I remember it was almost like a kind of a free bit of advice. You know, it's how important it is to, to build trust and especially in, in liberal democracies. And, and I'd made the sort of comment to him at the time that for any company in, this, in, this, in, in the world, you know, whether it's in the UK, but very much so in China, to kind of to say that the government never gets in contact with, with us or we never share in, any information, I think would make it incredibly difficult for a company to build any sort of trust. Because in the UK, in the United States, you know, day in, day out, the big tech companies like so Google, Facebook, is that they'll be getting called on by, by governments in relation to investigations, criminal investigations and, and whatever else. So I, I do think that those companies with headquarters in China should try and learn a little bit from, from the experience in the West and how you know corporations approach their relationship with the public and with the government also. I mean, on, on TikTok itself and the kind of threat that people are talking about it potentially posing, again, I, I would defer to our National Cybersecurity Centre and if they think that they can they can handle the risk um, they think that you know data isn't going to be shared across borders or there's ways in which you can kind of prevent that from happening again I would be very very happy to listen to them because I think it was publicly released at the time that 
kind of highest levels of our security agencies back, you know, three years ago before the United States changed the legislative approach to um, to chips and the installation of Huawei and telecommunication infrastructure is that we were under the understanding that we could actually manage the risk of Huawei. So I think there's a debate there between what is the kind of security, the actual security threat, and then what's the kind of politics behind this. But I think ultimately, like looking at TikTok, so I do, I do use TikTok and I have probably five, six, seven years ago, I actually had the, the Chinese version of that app, which is called Douyin which came just before TikTok. And the thing that I often, when I sit back and look at this, you know, we've got lots of these massive United States-based social media companies. And then I think with in the case of China, we're starting to see, again, it's influencing coming through. It's starting to be innovative. It's having these platforms, which, you know, hundreds of millions of people are using across the world. And I think the bigger challenge for us in Europe, in the United Kingdom, is to not just to get our regulatory approach correct, but is to look at our, you know, science and innovation and our tech environment and actually thinking like, can we produce an app which can compete with TikTok, you know, something that's better. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say actually with, with, with Chris was that, you know, do you think part of the problem is that maybe that China's become so dominant in this and we've had issues with Huawei and other, and other companies investing in the UK because they've had the best technology and, the, and actually is part of developing a better China policy is actually developing our own it's, it's, innovation you know Abs- policies Abs- Abs- as well. Absolutely, and abso- absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the last couple of years when I look back to some of the G7 conferences is that we spend an awful lot of time now actually reacting to China as an agenda setter. So, you know, when China's come up with the Built and Road initiative, you know, we've decided we're going to pull together a fund of some sort to compete with that. So it actually does show that they are, as a country or a society, that they are generating new ideas. Chris, I was going to ask about the unique kind of relationship between UK and China and the fact that some members of the research group have said that the UK lags behind the US on their position on China. Do you think that's true? What are your personal thoughts on it? And do you think there's any kind of unique perspective between the UK and China that means it should take a different approach to that of the US? Look, I don't think we should follow the, the US on absolutely everything that they do with China. I think that's the wrong way the way of looking at it, not least because we're, we're very different sort of size powers and and the nature of our countries and societies is, is different, although the US is a, a key ally. I would characterize it as having sort of three distinct eras since the end of New Labour, really. So we, we spoke about this idea of the golden era, where David Cameron and George Osborne declared us as China's best friend in the West. It was the, the she in the pub time. And we sort of opened our arms to Chinese investment, supported Chinese multilateral projects, which was sort of used to project Chinese soft power. So the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, Battle Road Initiative. And then from sort of 2017 to 2018, we went through this period of, I call it the sounding the alarm era, if you like, it sounds a little bit too sort of securitized, but we woke up to the nature of the CCP under Xi and our dangerous dependence in some areas. And there was a confluence of factors that led to us. There was the, the human rights abuses in Xinjiang, wider coverage of them, the Hong Kong protests broke out, the Huawei issue, which Mark has alluded to, and, and whether Huawei would build our 5G networks. And also COVID was a huge factor in British public opinion on on China. And to cut a long story short, I think we're in this solutions-oriented era, I call it now, where it's no longer good enough to just diagnose sort of bugs in our system or problems when it comes to our relations with with China. I I agree with Mark completely. We need a functioning relationship with China. We can't turn our backs on it. 
but we need to have a discussion about what we want that relationship to look like. Where do we need to draw red, our own red lines so that we can then go and embrace other aspects of our relationship with China in full? Because we're going to need to cooperate on transnational issues, climate change, pandemics, you know, all of these things. And I still think we're not quite there yet in the, in the UK. And I was going to ask as well, so in my conversation with Ian Duncan Smith, he essentially said that the Foreign Office and the Treasury were hesitant to act on China because of our over-reliance on China for industries such as rare earth minerals, manufacturing and other industries like that. What would you say to that claim? Do you think there is a hesitancy there because of over-reliance? If so, how do you think there is a way forward with that? So I think we've been very bad at thinking through industrial strategy. I think since Thatcher, really, it's been a, a bit of a dirty word, particularly in the Conservative Party and the US and EU are thinking about it in a big way. And that's within the context of, of their relationship with China. I, I think we're a step behind at the moment, but we're not going to be able to do everything domestically, right? We can't build a, an indigenous sort of self-sufficient critical mineral supply chain. China controls 90% of the midstream processing. So we need to think about what level of dependence we're comfortable with and then where we need to French or that's the, the word, in, word in vogue at the moment. So what role can the UK play in the supply chain? And then where do we need to work with our like-minded allies to reduce that dependence? So then we can go and embrace our relationship with China in a, a sort of safe, securitized way. Mm, yeah, Mark, I was interested, you, you said before about kind of being out in front of things. I think often when I've reported on, on stories around China, it's often been that different government departments have different ideas about how to frame China policy. And there's no overarching China strategy. There's been talk about the government putting together an overall China strategy that every decision is made through the prism of this one strategy. Do you think that's something that the government needs to look at rather than you end up with the business department going in one direction, the treasury in another and transport in another and security in another direction? Actually, it's we have a choice to make. So we, we, we can stand in the sidelines and we can snipe, you know, we can, we can be in the stands or we can be on the football pitch itself. Uh, the reality of the football pitch that we're playing on is that the story of, of these next few decades will be that geopolitical competition between the United States and China. So they are the two teams that are on the football pitch. Where we have the opportunity with the United Kingdom is that, you know, we're still top six economy in the world. We sit on the United Nations Security Council. We have a huge amount of soft power influence. I think we have an opportunity to be a, a trusted advisor, to be the referee on the pitch between these two countries, because we understand these two countries, um, historically speaking, with a lot of depth. And when you look through our foreign office, you think of the special relationship that we have with the United States. We've also, you know, going back to the 1930s, 40s, we went through that process of passing the baton over from the United Kingdom to the United States as it took on its role as the hegemon in global affairs. Uh, when it comes to China, we have a much more historic relationship with China going back to the, the late 18th century. And we've had our ups and downs over the last 200 years between both our countries. So I think that's, the, that's where the big opportunity rests. And if we really want to be a global Britain, that's where we should be playing at at the moment. We should be trying to find our place, you know, between these two countries and to be able to guide them. Because obviously there's many things which which China are doing, which we, you know, completely oppose as a government. Mm. There's things that they can improve on. But experience of, of having lived there and having worked there, so it's a massive country with a massive amount of influence and, and power. You know, it'll get to the point where we'll just be seen as kind of this grumpy 
person bickering at them the whole time and you know they'll just end up ignoring us and i think what's better is to kind of show you know learn from our experiences you know where in the past have we made mistakes and where where are there things that we could do better because you look at the geopolitics of it you look at ukraine and i said this a year ago just after russia's invasion started in ukraine is that the last thing we want to do diplomatically is push china into the arms of russia yeah definitely and i think that's what we've seen obviously in the last few weeks we've seen obviously china perhaps you know suggesting that peace talks and there's been talk of, of china potentially arming russia that they've obviously denied that and i guess it's the foreign policy issue that's one that we've got to sort of look at i suppose as well and whether we can actually have any influence obviously we've Lots of MPs have been quite outspoken about what's going on with the Uyghurs and, and Xinjiang, and lots of MPs have been sanctioned. I just wondered, Chris, do you, what do you think can be the UK's influence on that? Obviously, they're making enough noise that they're getting repercussions from from Beijing, but is that actually do you think going to change things as as to what's going on in Xinjiang? I think in short, no, again, we have to be be strong on these issues and uh, I was encouraged to see the foreign, foreign secretary raise them again at the, the UN this week. I think that the, the UK parliament has labelled what's going on as, as genocide. The government ha- hasn't and that there's lots of reasons why that has happened. But what parliament labelling the repression of the Uyghur Muslims as genocide does is that every time a Xinjiang issue is, is raised in the House, the that is there, right? That sort of colours everything. I, I think that we're going through a new era where some of these, some of these camps are sort of being reduced in scale, but there's still that cultural assimilation, which, you know, it doesn't make me comfortable making Holocaust comparisons, but it's it's been the largest detention of ethnic and religious minorities since that time, and we have to continue to be sort of vocally strong on that. But but as Mark says, we need to be in the room with China to be able to do that. And Mark, do you think that you've talked about engagement? Do you think that there is engagement can lead to significant changes when it comes to, I say, those very serious issues like the, the Xinjiang? I think, you know, over, over the last kind of almost, what, five to 10 years is that we've, we've seen this globally, whether it's on supply chains, whether it's on trade, is that the world and most of the world's countries have turned in on themselves a little bit. They've gone a little bit introverted. And the reason, you know, I don't like to see that happening is because if, you know, the the main sort of focus of governments is no longer in the departments of trade or foreign office and it moves to other departments within governments. And then we're potentially moving into a very dangerous world. So I do believe strongly in engagement. That's why the, the all party parliamentary group on China has that as its main guiding guiding forces to, to have engagement between the UK and China. I do think that we can have influence on certain issues. Obviously, in our own liberal democracy, we see things differently. We go about things differently, our policies, the, the multicultural society that we live in. But I, and whereas with, with the Chinese, you know, they see their state as a, a unitary state. You know, they believe much more in majoritarianism, where if the, the Han, Hanzo Han population is well over 90% of the population, then it's oftentimes seen as, you know, if the vast majority of people are happy, then fantastic. We'll continue on with our economic development. But I do think that there there are lessons there to be to be learned in the UK's own experiences. And I know with Chris on the call here, a fellow Kilt and, and a Scotsman, that you know, the fact that back in twenty fourteen you know we were able to have a, a referendum in, in Scotland. Um, obviously I would never want to see Scotland leave the United Kingdom, but I do think that there's a real maturity in the way in which we go about managing our affairs and the relationship between state and people. And I think that's that's something that China 
in the years, decades to come, will have to grapple with as people are now wealthier. Uh, you know, it's the biggest question of the last century was how does China get wealthier? That was the biggest question for China. The biggest question now for China is we are now wealthy in China. How do we use that wealth and how do we use that power that we have? That's all we've got time for this week. But you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Zoe Crowther, Mark Logan and Chris Cash. And a special shout-out to our reporter, John Johnston, who is leaving politics home today. You're going to be much missed. Thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe to your podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Lance Holhurst, and this has been The Rundown.